Thank you, Stan. In 1517, 500 years ago, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Church, and the world was forever changed. When Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis, his hope was to reform the church, not to be kicked out of it. But he was very upset with the practice of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of charging people money for indulgences. Now, an indulgence is a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins. In the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church at the time was selling people indulgences as a part of a capital campaign for St. Peter's Basilica. Dominican friar Johann Tetzel was particularly good at selling indulgences. He had this catchy phrase, As soon as money in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory's fire springs. That sold a lot of indulgences, that tagline right there. The Roman, of course, uh, you know, the idea was that if you had a loved one who was stuck in purgatory, you could give some money to Johann Tetzel, and then he would offer an indulgence saying that your your loved one would would go straight from purgatory to heaven. And the Roman Catholic uh, today, in their uh, Catholic encyclopedia, defines indulgences this way. An indulgence is the extra sacramental remission of the temporal punishment due in God's justice to sin that has been forgiven, which remission is granted by the church in the exercise of the power of the keys through the application of the superabundant merits of priority of the saints and for some just and reasonable motive. That's one sentence. That was all one sentence. Now, if you don't still understand what an indulgence is, don't worry about it. It's not in the Bible. Neither is purgatory. In fact, as Martin Luther tried to bring the word of God to the people of God, to his fellow Germans, he began to translate the Bible from Greek, the New Testament, from Greek to German. And he found that there was much that the Roman Catholic Church at the time was doing that was not in Scripture. And so the fivefold cry of the Reformation was grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Scripture alone is our authority in faith and life as we seek to live our lives to the glory of God alone. We're only going to worship God and bring all of our praise to God out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Now, you've heard me speak of the five solas of the Reformation, but how was it that this became the cry of the Reformation exactly? Well, in 1516, while Martin Luther was lecturing on Romans, the epistle uh, that Paul writes to the Romans, to the house churches in Rome, he was studying, and when he got to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, he read a notation that St. Augustine in the 4th century had written about the righteousness of God. And as he read what St. Augustine had to say, and as he began to teach through Romans, his life was forever changed. So in order for us to fully appreciate the transformative word of God and how two verses could help change the church forever, I would encourage you to open your pew Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. It may be found on page 1194 of your red pew Bible, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And and I would ask you to keep your red pew Bible open. We'll be going through, flipping from one page to the next. And if you brought a Bible, good for you. And I would encourage you to underline these verses. Uh, Unfortunately, I've had to do a lot of funerals lately. And every time I do a funeral, I notice that, you know, the the prized possession from anyone who has passed is their Bible. 
because they want to see the notes and the words that were underlined by their loved one. Well, you want your loved ones to read that you underline these verses. And if you want to underline them in the Red Pew Bible, that's okay too. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Two very important verses in all the Bible. Let me pray before we read God's word again though. God, I thank you so much that you're the God who inspired Paul to put pen to paper to write to the house churches in Rome to help communicate the gospel message that he proclaimed, to help bring unity to the body of Christ, to help further the mission of Christ. I pray, O Lord, that as we read your word today, you would do the same. Just as these words transformed the heart of Martin Luther, may they transform our lives today to see clearly what it is you want to say, what it is you want us to hear. O Lord, may our hearts be open and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Romans chapter one, beginning with verse 16, it may be found again on page 1194 of your red pew Bible. Listen to God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, why would Paul need to write that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Were people ashamed of the gospel in the first century? Are are we ashamed of the gospel today? I mean, the Greek word for gospel is eugelion. It literally means good news. In fact, the Eugelistus was the evangelist who brought good news. This term was usually used to talk about a person, an evangelist, bringing good news from the battlefield that the victory has been won. Why would Paul or any of us be ashamed of the gospel? Why, why would he say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Doesn't the gospel, isn't it good news? I don't know about you, but I, I need some good news. I often have a hard time watching the news because most of it's bad news. I usually feel bad. I'd love to hear some good news. So why is it that anyone would be ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Well, Paul is writing Romans to the house churches in Rome. And of course, Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. All roads lead to Rome. And in Rome, there are people who worship many different gods. Lots of pagan gods were being worshipped in Rome. And in the first century, imperial worship had really risen to the top where people were being encouraged to worship Caesar as if he was God. But the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And so if Jesus is Lord then Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then every other faith and religion is false. If Jesus Christ alone is Lord, then that means we're not Lord, and we're going to have to adjust our lives and change to become more like Christ. And many of us don't want to change, do we? As we begin to look at the story of the Apostle Paul, which will start the Sunday after Labor Day weekend, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 and how Paul went through this radical conversion experience. 
We'll see that as Paul begins to preach the gospel, he is imprisoned, he is flogged, he's even stoned and left for dead in the city of Lystra. Yet the apostle Paul continues to preach the gospel despite this persecution. Why was Paul so insistent on preaching the gospel? The gospel is good news, good news that we must share. And as Paul writes, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. When people really hear the gospel, then their eyes are opened, their hearts are broken, and their lives are forever changed. For the gospel, when it's really heard, takes a selfish person and makes them selfless. The gospel, when it's really heard, takes a greedy person and makes them generous. The gospel, when it's really heard, takes a fearful person and makes them brave. The gospel, when it's really heard, takes a self-righteous, arrogant person and makes them humble. The gospel, when it's truly heard, takes a licentious, promiscuous, immoral person and makes them obedient. Throughout the history of the church, we have seen how the gospel has radically changed lives. It has the power to, to change lives dramatically. John Newton, who was a slave trader, heard the gospel and he, and he became an abolitionist and wrote the beautiful song, Amazing Grace. The gospel took a, a ruthless lawyer known as the hatchet man in the Nixon administration and made Chuck Colson the faithful founder of prison fellowship. In the Bible, we can see that the gospel changed Saul, a Pharisee, who was on his way to persecute Christians and changed his life in such a radical way that he became one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known and helped pen much of the New Testament. It was when Paul writes that, the, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, for salvation, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul knows what he's talking about. He's experienced that transformative power. The gospel has the power to, to change anyone. So what is the gospel exactly? Well, in the Bible, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are faithful testimonies of the life and the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. But all four gospels were written after Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. So Paul's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, if you've never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I would encourage you to do so. You can actually read the gospel of Mark in one hour. Most people can read it in about one hour. It doesn't take long, and it will change your lives. When Paul writes about the gospel, he's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. No, when, when Paul writes about the gospel, he's specifically talking about the good news that God loves humanity so much that despite our sin, despite our rebellion, God sent his one and only son here to this earth who was without sin to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God once and for all. As Paul writes previously to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, you might turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's page 1228, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, underline it, all your descendants will go, wow, my, my granddad or grandmother really knew their, their Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
It's Jesus who was perfect in obedience to our Heavenly Father, became sin for us. He, he died at, cursed, as it, Paul writes to the church in Galatia. One of his earliest letters, he writes to the, church, the churches in the region of Galatia. Uh, you can look that up too. Galatians uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, Galatians 3.13, page 1237 of your Red Pew Bible. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus' death on a cross wasn't incidental. It wasn't accidental. It was purposeful. God's plan was that Jesus would become a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus, who was without sin, died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Yes, ultimately the gospel, the good news of Jesus, lets us know just how much God loves us. For in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, and I quote this a lot every Sunday here, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ helps us see just how much God loves us. He loves us with an unconditional love sacrificial love. The cross of Christ helps us see that God loves us because he loves us. It wasn't because we had started to get our acts together that God sent his son. No, it was was in spite of the fact that we were sinful that God sent his son to die for us. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. There's nothing we can add to Christ's great sacrifice. As Jesus says on the cross in John 17, his final words, or the gospel of John, not 17, it's uh, later in 19. He says, it is finished. That's the final thing he says in the Gospel of John. It is finished. Our sins have been atoned for. And we now receive this great gift of Christ's righteous sacrifice, perfect sacrifice, simply through faith. For as you read in verse 17, for in it, the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, and he now quotes Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 17 changed Martin Luther's life forever. Verse 17 helped launch the Reformation and helped create the Lutheran Church and and now the Presbyterian Church, where we declare that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. You see, Martin Luther used to really struggle with the word, the term, the righteousness of God. He used to hate that term because it just reminded him of his own sinfulness. Martin Luther understood that the righteousness of God is simply about God's holiness. And as we stand before a holy God, as Isaiah did, we are reminded of our own sinfulness. And so the Roman Catholic Church at the time had a, had a very complex system where you would, you would confess your sins to a fellow priest. The priest would offer you an absolution, and then you would have to do some type of penance. Martin Luther was burdened by his sins, and so he would spend an hour, if not more, confessing his sins to a priest. Finally, the priest would absolve him and then tell him, send him on his way to do some type of penance, some type of act showing your repentance, whether it be a series of prayers or some type of act of service. And on his way to go do his penance, he would sin again. Ah, oh, he could never feel like he was right with God if it depended on him. But then he read the words of St. Augustine, who in the fourth century pointed out that the righteousness of God is not just about God's righteousness, God's holiness, but rather the righteousness of God is a gift that God gives to us. As Martin Luther explains, it's, it's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that is given to us, imputed to us, simply through faith. 
We are found righteous in the eyes of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And we receive this gift simply through through faith. And this gospel, this good news of God's righteousness being given to us through Christ, through faith, flies in the in the face of everything we know. Because most of our lives, we're measured by what we do. In track, it's the winner who gets the gold medal. You win because you ran the fastest. In school, it's when you do your homework and get the right answers on the test that you actually rewarded good grades. In business, it's when you close the sale or bill the hours that you get rewarded and get paid. But the gospel of grace is not about what you do. It's about what God has done for us. As Tim Keller often points out, In most religious systems, we are accepted by God if we obey. We obey, then we're accepted. That's the order of most religions. But the gospel of grace is the exact opposite. The gospel of grace helps us see that we are accepted by God, therefore we obey. We are accepted by God before we ever do anything good. God accepts us. He loves us. And in gratitude for God's acceptance, in gratitude for His grace, We therefore obey. For the gospel helps a selfish person become selfless in gratitude for Christ's selfless sacrifice. The gospel helps a a greedy person become generous in gratitude for God's generous love. The gospel helps a fearful person become brave because they're no longer afraid of death. They know that death does not have the final say for those who call upon the name of the Lord. The gospel helps a self-righteous person become humble when he sees that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. The gospel helps the licentious, immoral, promiscuous person become obedient out of gratitude for all that God has done for us. It's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to try to earn our way to heaven. We simply receive Christ's righteousness as a gift. Jesus has done everything for us. And now we can live in in gratitude and we can worship God without any guilt or without any burden of responsibility, just thanking God for his amazing grace. It's the gospel ultimately helps us see that no matter what we've done, we cannot out-sin God's grace. In 1994, my college pastor, Fred Adams, at the First Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, wanted me to meet his mentor, a man named Baker Duncan. Baker is an owner of his own venture capitalist firm. I was a finance and economics major, and so I thought, hey, that might be a good opportunity. Maybe I could get an internship with Baker Duncan someday. And since Baker was Fred's spiritual mentor, I thought, wow, what an opportunity. And so I was eager to meet Baker Duncan. Well, I went into Baker's office, and Baker's a pretty tall, intimidating man. He's about 6'7", a bald man with beady blue eyes. He's kind of like, looks like Mr. Clean without the earring, you know, but glasses. <laughs> and I sat across from Baker. He has this huge office with his big desk, and he, he invited me to sit down, and he has kind of this James Earl Jones voice where he talks real deep. And he said, Howard, have a seat. And he asked me, he said, Howard, how well would you like to get to know me? I said, well, Baker, I'd like to get to know you well. Percentage-wise, Howard, how much do you want to know me? Well, not wanting to seem uh, indifferent or, you know, half-baked, I said, well, 100%, Baker. Very well then, Howard. How well should I get to know you? Well, I guess fair is fair. 100%, I guess. Great, Howard. Tell me, what's the most despicable thing you have ever done? I wasn't even sure this guy knew my middle name. And he wanted me to tell him what was the most despicable thing I'd ever done. How would you answer that question? 
What comes to mind for you? In your life, what is the most despicable thing you've ever done? Maybe you've hurt someone physically or with your words. Maybe you've committed some type of sexual indiscretion. Maybe you've gossiped about someone. What is that sin that you wouldn't want anyone else to know about? Well, as I sat there and began to wrestle in my seat, I was thinking, you know, meeting with Baker Duncan was a bad idea. <laughs> Baker could tell I was hesitating, and so he said, Howard, while you're thinking about your sin, let me tell you mine. And he began to share with me what he considered to be his most despicable moment. Now, what shocked me that afternoon was not the despicable nature of his sin, but rather the peace with which he told his story. After confessing his sin, he he looked to me and, well, mentally I thought to myself, gosh, Baker, you got me beat. (laughs) And so I began to share with him what I considered to be at the time my most despicable sin. James 5.16 tells us that we should confess our sins to one another, for the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. As I confessed this sin to Baker, at the end of it, I sat there nervous, and Baker leaned back in his chair, and he asked me, Howard, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, did he pay the price for that sin? With the calming realization of God's amazing grace, I said, yes. Yes, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the price for that sin. He paid the price for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Yes, as Jesus said, it is finished. There's nothing we can add to Christ's sacrifice. We simply receive it as a gift. And it's Christ's sacrifice. And receiving that gift through faith that ultimately makes us righteous, right with God. That's the good news. When was the last time you shared that good news with someone? And just as importantly, when was the last time you invited someone here to this church to help hear that good news? As you know, we've been doing a a sermon series on the core four strategy of our church, worship, grow, connect, and serve. And today we're talking about worship. And uh, we we specifically value worship from the Reformed faith, from the Reformed tradition. And Reformed worship is guided by Reformed theology. And so our Reformed theology teaches us ultimately that the gospel of grace, it's just a gift. We're made right with God, not by what we've done, but by what Jesus has done. And so we come here out of gratitude for what God has done for us. I don't come to worship God hoping I'll earn points with God or out of some sense of obligation or duty. No, I come here out of gratitude for what God has done for me. And of course, guided by the Reformed faith and our understanding of of Scripture, we are order our service around scriptures I mentioned earlier by Isaiah 6. You know, we confess our sins early in the worship service. But our services are saturated with scripture because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so here at 11, we have a, a call to worship from the scriptures, from the Psalms. And then, of course, we, we have a prayer of confession, and the assurance of pardon usually quotes some scripture. You know, we mentioned Romans 5, verse 8. And, and then, of course, then we have a reading from, from both the Old and the New Testament. And, and today, we, we read from Genesis 15, a very important text that helps us see that even Abraham was declared righteous by God, not by what he did, but what he believed. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Yes, Abraham 
was credited as righteous because of what he believed, not by what he did. The same is true for us. Yes, the first part of any Presbyterian service is in order to prepare us to hear the word of God. And so we have a prayer of illumination just as, as Stan beautifully prayed a moment ago and I prayed as well. Because we know in Psalm 127 verse 1 it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. We are sinful people who need God's spirit to open our eyes as they open Paul's eyes, as they open Martin Luther's eyes so that we might properly hear God's word today. As, as Presbyterians who emphasize the authority of Scripture, we always seek to preach the full counsel of God. You'll see that usually I'm preaching through books of the Bible. We don't want to skip a verse. We want all of God's word to be heard, knowing that all of it is helpful for us. Yes, in the Reformed service also, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is always proclaimed. Whether that be a part of the assurance of pardon or as a part of our prayers or as a part of the sermon message. I don't know what denominational background you come from, but if you were raised Roman Catholic, you know that in the Roman Catholic Church, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, is kind of the central act of worship in a, in a uh, Roman Catholic worship service. But in the Presbyterian Church, the, the central act for us is, is the reading and preaching of God's Word, knowing that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, it's life-giving. And so we gather together to, to hear God's Word so that we might live in response to God's word proclaimed. Yes, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so every time we gather in worship, we seek to proclaim the gospel. When was the last time you invited someone here so they might hear the gospel and be changed? Because the gospel, it changes everything. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you for the fact that the gospel changes everything. It changes a wretch like us and helps us to become obedient by your spirit to your word. Oh God, we pray that we might live in light of the gospel, that we might be people of grace, that we might be people of forgiveness, that we might be people who are bold in our witness of your great love. Help us to be bold in inviting others to hear the good news or to share the good news with them directly. Oh God, we do not live in fear, but we live by faith knowing that Christ has conquered sin and death on our behalf. And so we have nothing to fear. You are with us. We thank you for your spirit. Guide us now as we seek to live in response to your good news this day and every day. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said.